At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, Amy Willens will talk about Sandra Oh's new Netflix comedy, Chair, about the first Asian-American woman who's chair of an English department at a major university. But first, we're still thinking about the 20th anniversary of 9-11. After the attacks that day, Muslim Americans endured years of racism and sometimes violence. Muslim communities were subject to government surveillance in their homes, their schools, their workplaces, and mosques. The fight against government surveillance of Muslim Americans continues today as the Supreme Court takes up a challenge to government efforts to conceal FBI abuse of power in a case dating from 2006, when the FBI in L.A. hired a guy to infiltrate several mosques in Orange County, California, south of Los Angeles. He was supposed to be looking for terrorists when the story came out, three of the people he had surveilled sued the FBI, arguing that the government had violated their privacy rights and discriminated against them on the basis of their religion. Ten years after they filed that suit, the case still has not gone to trial, but part of their case is going to the Supreme Court this fall. For comment, we turn to the attorney who will be arguing the case at the Supreme Court, Ahilan Arulanantham. He's a professor at UCLA Law School and co-director of the Center for Immigration Law and Policy there. Before that, at the ACLU of Southern California, he successfully litigated a number of cases involving immigrants' rights, including the first case to establish a federal right to appointed counsel for immigrants, and most recently, a challenge to the Trump administration's plan to end the TPS program, Temporary Protected Status for Immigrants Who Have Lived Here Lawfully for Decades. Ahilan has argued twice before at the Supreme Court and will argue again this fall on behalf of those three American Muslims. That case is called FBI versus Fazaga. One more thing, in 2016, he received a MacArthur Genius Grant. Ahilan, welcome back. It's great to be talking to you again, John. Let's start with the FBI undercover operation. I remember that in 2012, This American Life did a whole show about it, and they even interviewed the undercover agent Craig Mon Montiel. Uh, tell us his story, how he was recruited, and how what happened then? He was the person with a criminal history. He was serving time uh, in prison. That's the way a good number of informants get recruited by uh, law enforcement. It's a French name, Monte or Monte, and he thought that he could pose as, um, you know, French, um, Syrian, Algerian, something like that, and work as an informant for them. And they recruited him, and that's what he did. They did this right at the same time back in 2006, when there was a lot of concern in the Muslim community about the FBI going and doing dragnet surveillance of people in mosques. 
And there was a public meeting about this in Southern California, which was widely attended by many people in the Muslim communities here. And the FBI publicly promised everyone that they would not be sending informants into mosques, period. And that was a lie. And in fact, they did do that. Um, and as you recounted a little bit at the beginning, you know, Craig Monte went around, he, he, he took uh, Shahada, the sort of uh, conversion uh, oath, and became a Muslim publicly in front of something like a thousand people in the Islamic Center of Irvine. Um, he then was very frequent attender of the mosque in Irvine and Mission Viejo, you know, um, got to know a whole lot of people there, talked to a whole lot of them. And didn't find any terrorism, didn't find anything to be concerned about on the national security front. Um, and of course, the, the sort of nature of the informant relationship is that uh, you have to kind of produce stuff, right? Um, and he was being paid thousands of dollars a month to be doing this work. And so he tried harder and harder to do it and eventually started scaring people in the community. And um, they eventually uh, talked about it and decided he was he was a dangerous person and uh, reported him to the FBI. <laughs> and that's actually what happened. And then shortly after that, it became clear that uh, well, first the FBI publicly announced uh, sort of um, made clear um, that he was uh, an informant, uh, and that's sort of what led to the buildup to the suit in Fazaga. You know, now this is sort of far away because obviously this was a very a great number of years ago. But there's a huge amount of fear in the community about suing the FBI. Uh, in part because the FBI was was back then even more than it is now, although it's still doing it now, regularly going out to people's homes to do quote unquote voluntary interviews, asking people about their religious practices. What does the imam say at your mosque? How many times do you pray? Even things like, what are your views on the war in Iraq? And these are the kinds of questions that the FBI would routinely ask people. And so there was a lot of concern about doing this, but there were three people, Sheikh Fazaga being a, a very prominent leader and imam, and also a person who has been contracted by the U.S. government to do uh, work, including sort of religious outreach work on sort of explaining and making the religion comprehensible to people. They they decided that it was really important to sue over this. And uh, tell us tell us specifically about what the original lawsuit argued. The basic claims in the lawsuit were that Monte was told by the FBI just to go and gather information on Muslims without any sort of focus on people who may be engaging in criminal activity. And if you think he worked for something like 15 months and there, there was no crime really to be found, you know, there's one criminal case about a person who uh, may have engaged in naturalization fraud that was then dismissed. That was it. That was the only federal prosecution that came out of this. Um, but yet he spent months and months going to prayer, going to uh, various services, talking to all these people, and then giving information, their email addresses, their phone numbers, recording their conversations in the mosque. He had a, a recording device in his keys that he would keep and record conversations. Even if he left the conversations, he would leave his keys there to record them. He went into people's houses. He played their video games, you know, all of this. So, so the core allegation in the, uh, in the one set of uh, claims in the case is this is discrimination on the basis of religion. When the FBI is going and surveilling thousands and thousands of hours of recordings about what their conversations are. And the only reason it's doing it is because they adhere to a particular religion. That is discrimination on the basis of religion. The other set of claims are sort of more technical, but I think also very important about the privacy violations associated with this. In other words, regardless of whether they were Muslim or anybody else, the government is not allowed to be recording the conversations of people if it's not a party to that conversation um, without a warrant from a court. Um, and even if there is a warrant, you, if you are recording conversations in people's homes, in Fazaga's office, 
in other private spaces, there has to be reasonable suspicion that there's criminal activity that that, that the government's supposed to be investigating. There too, that those are important protections to the Fourth Amendment that were also violated in this case. So this case has never gone to trial, but part of it is going to the Supreme Court this fall. You're going to be arguing. What's that about? So when when we argued and presented the evidence uh, from the informant that the government had engaged in discrimination on the basis of religion and these privacy violations, the government responded by saying, look, we don't target people solely on the basis of their religion, um, but to say anything else about what we were doing here would require us to disclose secret information to, to defend ourselves. And we can't do that because it's secret. And so we have to dismiss your whole case. Government is asserting something called the state secrets privilege. This is the Trump administration? No, actually, this is the Obama administration. And we filed a lawsuit in 2010. The state secrets privilege was widely used by the Bush administration to prevent lawsuits on the NSA wiretapping program, on the torture and rendition, what we call the rendition program, that the torture program that was run in the black sites uh, after 9-11 for years. Um, and they also invoke that same doctrine here. This is the Obama administration told a judge that responding to this lawsuit would, would pose a reasonable danger to national security by revealing these secrets. What is the danger to national security? What have they explained about the danger that you are asking them to, to expose? Very little. <laughs> there are classified declarations that we have not seen. Um, but publicly, all they say is disclosing whether we actually were investigating people uh, and the reasons why we were doing it would harm national security. And that's it. So usually they're concerned about revealing identities and sources and methods. But as you said, we know the identity of the informant. He's told us the sources and methods that he used. So what what are the remaining secrets here? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, you don't know what you don't know, but but we we have always found it very implausible that an FBI investigation into American citizens and uh, lawful permanent residents in Orange County could implicate the state secrets privilege. And that, that was true when we filed the case in 2010. Now it's been 15 years since all of this happened. And the idea that it all has to remain secret, so secret that people can't even assert their constitutional rights is, is I think even more implausible now. But I wanna say one other thing about this, John. The argument was not that we, the litigants and uh, the, the attorneys should get to see all the information which the government says is secret. And our argument was, if the government wants to defend itself using secret evidence, then it should give that evidence to the court and let the court decide if the government had engaged in religious discrimination or not. What we argued was there's a provision for that that Congress wrote specifically about electronic surveillance in a law called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act in 1978 which was a law enacted in the wake of all the abuses, particularly of the Nixon administration, but also preceding that with you know, unlawful surveillance happening without warrants for people who were Vietnam War protesters, civil rights activists, opponents of the administration. Uh, and we were saying that law gives you a tool for what to do when the government says that it has secret evidence needed to defend itself. 
which is give it to the court. And that way make sure that the government isn't actually breaking the law, isn't actually violating the constitution when they're engaging in this activity. And of course, on their view, the court never gets to decide if they actually violated the constitution, if they actually really did target people because of their religion. As long as the, the, the operation is secret and it would reveal, as you say, the sources and methods or identities or, or the predication, what they call the, you know, the reasons for the investigation, then the whole thing has to be shut down. And that's the essential dispute that's going to the Supreme Court. So our uh, underlying concern here is that this blanket claim of the state secrets privilege could be used to cover up misconduct, wrongdoing, dishonesty, or even worse. I mean, you talked about torture or assassinations. Now we're talking, I believe, about the Biden Justice Department, are we not? Yes, I think it's really important for your listeners to understand that while obviously there are huge differences between the Bush administration, the Obama administration, the Trump administration, the Biden administration, on this set of issues, which is should the government have the power to shut the courthouse door to even the most serious allegations of constitutional violations and human rights violations, if they assert that it's all being done in secret. On that fundamental question, there has been uniform agreement uh, and no change in the government's approach from the Bush administration to today, four administrations, all the same. Yeah, the, the, the government's argument basically is, yes, maybe there, there could be abuses here, but sometimes the courts don't get to say what the law is. Sometimes the executive branch just has to be governed by itself. They, they very much insist that it's not the court's role to figure out whether the government's conduct was lawful. It's just the court's role to determine that, yes, this program is secret. And as long as the court agrees it's secret, then you stop the litigation. And that is the reason why to this day, there was never accountability as to uh, extraordinary rendition, the whole torture black site program that was run under the Bush administration. It is the reason why there was never actually accountability for the massive NSA wiretapping um, programs, which ran, and then Congress obviously ratified them um, as part of the FISA amendments. Um, you know, we've never had accountability for so many of the basic human rights and constitutional law violations that happened in the name of the quote unquote war on terror after 9-11. Um, and I, I see this case, um, uh, FBI v. Fazaga, as very much sort of consonant with that, right? Because here, we're not talking about torture. We're not talking about um, even a mass surveillance program for the whole country using metadata and all that. We're just talking about spying on mosques. These are Americans practicing their religion, and the government thinks their religion is suspicious, and so they come and spy on them. And all we are seeking is a day in court where a court will actually look and see, did the government do that? Because their own informant says they did it. Is that true? Did they do it? And if they did it, is it lawful? And the government is trying so hard, even now the Biden administration is trying everything in its power to say, we do not want a court to look and see if this is lawful or not. Nevertheless, this Supreme Court has agreed to hear the case, has agreed to hear you making these arguments. We're a little surprised by this, given the way the makeup of the court has changed over the last few years. We usually don't think of a more conservative, more Republican court as being more open to argument on this kind of issue. 
what's your thinking about why they're hearing this and what kind of arguments they are they're interested in well you know we we won below so obviously we opposed them hearing it and tried to get them not to hear it and there is not an issue where the lower courts are split. There was no courts that had said, for example, that FISA does not provide the governing procedure here. Um, so, um, you know, in that sense, it was not um, a case that you might necessarily have expected the court to take. Um, but I wasn't all that surprised. You know, it's a national security case involving a very important issue. The court actually took another state secrets case also arising out of a Polish prosecution um, involving the extraordinary rendition um, torture black site program. That is, yeah, it's also about whether or not uh, certain kinds of evidence can be um, made public. So it looked like they they chose to take two state secrets cases that had arisen around the um, you know around the same time. You know, as you know, don't want to say too much. You know, obviously re revealing, you know, thinking about the strategy of how we approach this and all that. But I will say two things. I think it's a court that's very interested in text and in the language of statutes. And I think we have a very good argument that Congress wrote a statute to govern this particular situation, which is when there's electronic surveillance and there's litigation about it and it raises national security issues, what should you do? And Congress wrote a statute that says you give the evidence, secret evidence to the court, don't give it to other people, just give it to the court and have the court decide if the surveillance was lawful. So I think that's good for us. And then the other thing is it's a court that's very interested in history, obviously. And the state secrets privilege is an old doctrine. So there's a lot of history about this doctrine that goes back to the common law, actually, back even some like right around the founding of the country. And almost none of it supports the idea that the government can just make the case go away, you know, win an outright dismissal, even when the plaintiffs can present enough evidence to prove their case. So it's a situation where the history, I think, is very much on our side, the history of how this doctrine worked, like going way back. One last thing about the, the history. I understand the state secrets privilege was first recognized by the Supreme Court in a 1953 case called U.S. versus Reynolds that involved the crash of a government B-29 in, in the uh, Southwest. Uh, tell us about that case and what we learned about the secrets that were being protected there. It's a case about, it's a, it's a plane crash, and they were testing some kind of secret equipment and people on the plane died, including contractors who were not working, I mean, who were working for the military, but were not themselves service people and the, and the widows sued. And the government said to, there was a report, an internal military report, which described the crash and they wanted to get that document. And the government said, but disclosing this document may reveal secret information, which would be very important to our, our enemies because, uh, you know, testing radar and whatnot. And the court agreed with that and dismissed the case. Then years later, the report was actually declassified, which just showed that it was common negligence. Some kind, I don't know exactly what the details were, some kind of flying mistake, which caused the crash. And, you know, almost nothing in the report, and you just re could redact just a few lines of the report and then you could have re released the entire report without revealing any kind of secret. And the widows could have had their justice because actually it turned out it was negligent and they should have been entitled to compensation for, for the crash. You never want to be defending a doctrine that's sort of in its origin point 
you know, has such a, has such a problematic, a problematic start. And I, I do think it's also indicative of, you know, any kind of doctrine which says, oh, if it's a secret, then you have to close off litigation. And that's not good. Transparency is good for democracy. It's really good for the government to have to sort of make account of itself to courts. And that that's how we protect people's rights. Transparency is good for democracy. Ahilan is co-director of the Center for Immigration Law and Policy at the UCLA Law School. He'll be challenging the state secrets doctrine before the Supreme Court this fall. Ahilan, thanks for your work and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me, John. There's a new comedy drama on TV about college teachers and campus politics starring Sandra Oh as the first Asian-American woman chair of an English department. It's called The Chair. It's on Netflix. For comment, we turn to Amy Willens. Of course, she's best known for her work on Haiti, most recently the award-winning book Farewell, Fred Voodoo. She's also written extensively about California, the Middle East, and the Trump family. She's the former Jerusalem Bureau Chief of the New Yorker magazine. She's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, and she's also a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow. Amy, welcome back. Thanks, John. Sandra O's oh's character on this show is a professor in an English department at a major university, and so are you in real life. And your English department, UC Irvine, in fact, has a connection to this show. Please explain. Well, one of the executive producers, David Benioff, is um, he's a figure at UCI now because he is an executive producer for Game of Thrones, arguably the most successful television show ever made. And he graduated from UC Irvine's uh, English department's MFA in creative writing in 1999. So he is our boy. <laughs> we yeah. love him. Yes, I, I saw a PR release from, from UCI. He got a $200 million deal from Netflix after Game of Thrones to do more. And the first thing he's done is Sandra O oh in the chair. Now you wonder why. <laughs> it's because he knew that aside from... Uh, like future medieval post-climate change zombie Iceman <laughs> story of death and jousting, the best other story available was one of an English department in America today. The chair is part of a genre, the academic comedy. Faculty members have been writing about the absurdities of academic life for a really long time. The New Yorker just republished a wonderful story by Vladimir Nabokov that was originally appeared there in 1959, Panin, which is about a new faculty member in a literature department at a liberal arts college. That came out 60 years ago, and many things have changed in the English department since then. What's the basic story of The Chair? Well, the basic story is when something is failing, that's when they put women in charge of it. So <laughs> that's how Sandra Oh, who plays uh, Ji Yoon, that's how she gets to be the chair of the English department. And then it goes on from there. One of her favorite members of the English department's faculty in attempting to illustrate something obscure that I didn't really understand. His name is Professor Dobson, Bill. He who steps across the floor in front of his entire class, giving the Nazi salute. 
he's illustrating some metaphorical thing, but that's what he does. And the students go crazy. Of course, on most college campuses, insulting the Jewish population would not be that big a deal. In fact, students do it all the time. <laughs> the, the Jewish students respond, but it's not usually a cause celebre at a at a campus now. But now they Benioff and the uh, the writers of the show decided that would be a less difficult one to confront. So that's the that's the problem of the show is this thing that the professor did. And then what happens to the English department when Bill Dobson, the professor who does the goose step, has to be taken to task and, uh, you know, brought up before the school board. So a second plot involves a wonderful African-American assistant professor woman named Yaz McKay, who is played by the brilliant Nana Mensah, who we've seen in a lot of other things on TV. She's up for tenure in a world controlled by old white men. And our Asian-American woman of color is in the middle. And this creates much drama. Yes. And, and what we see, which, you know, doesn't make me too happy. We see the older white men giving the same damn lecture over and over again. And, you know, not not paying enough attention to how the students want to hear about literature. And then we see the new, great, energetic African-American woman get up and, you know, have them rap Chaucer and have them tell stories from their own lives that are like the wife of Bath's tale. And she reminds them of how really low and crass and uh, willing to engage with filth Chaucer is. And all that is considered to be the great new way to teach English literature. So um, that you have her facing off against what is clearly a comic trio out of Shakespeare, the three old professors, two men and a woman and a woman. And um, they're almost slapstick. They bump into things. They're so old. They can't use the Xerox machine. Oh, did I say Xerox? I meant photocopy machine. <laughs> Let me not date myself. And they're placed in um, conflict with the young, fabulous, charismatic black teacher. Well, the challenge to everyone who teaches and who especially who's an administrator on a university campus these days is to, on the one hand, defend academic excellence. And on the other hand, promote diversity, equity, and inclusion. Three words we all know very well that always go together for some reason. How does the story uh, walk that fine line? It values both sides of the equation I just told you about. The, um, the three old professors and the way they teach and how much they care about their subject versus the new young professor and how much she cares about her subject and how she teaches. Um, I tend to feel that the writers have put themselves more on the side of the young new teacher than on the side of the old sort of uh, incapable of walking teacher. <laughs> so I think they come off a little bit like anti-ivory tower academics and pro little d democratic teaching. And I think it should be both, frankly. So that's me as a professor. I like the old folks. But on the other hand, I try to be like the young folks so my students don't yawn too much or fall asleep. 
Um, and there are professors who really do read their notes. They sit in front of you and they read from the notes that they've been giving as lecturers for 20 years. And that's kind of inexcusable to me. Everything should seem fresh and new, even if you don't wrap it. In one key episode, the dean chooses David Duchovny, played by himself, to be the chancellor's distinguished lecturer in English literature. This also has some connection to UCI, I think. Yes, it does. Now, it may happen everywhere. In fact, thinking about it, I have no doubt that this has happened in other places. But while I was, while I've been teaching at UCI in the English department, we had a, quite a brouhaha in 2015 when the chancellor decided to make James Franco basically a distinguished lecturer in arts and literature. And he had just had a big movie. And I, I went back into my emails when I knew I was going to talk to you, John, to see what I had written to my chair, who was the chair and not a woman at the time. And it's like, Martin, how can this be? Or Michael, how can this be? <laughs> James Franco has a BA. You know, he's not a distinguished anything except, you know, he's an actor. So, um, but that's what they did. And of course, the English department had other ideas about who should be the distinguished lecturer on literature and art. And, and so does the department chair in the chair. So does Ji Yun have a different idea about this. But guess who the person is that she wanted to be the distinguished lecturer? The, the person she wanted is Yaz McKay, the young Black professor, who Ji Yun is desperate to keep wants to keep at the school, wants to give her everything she richly deserves and doesn't really have as many resources as other schools might have. So she wants to give her this distinguished lectureship. Then, spoiler alert, when she goes to her to say, here's this distinguished lectureship, I wanted to give it to you and they're taking it away from me. Yaz says to her, oh, don't worry, I have one already. It's for Yale in the spring. P.S. They're also offering me a job for a lot more money than you're giving me and everything else I want. Is there anything else in, in the chair that connects with your experience on campus? Yeah, exactly. That story connects because we've had problems and this is a problem of diversity, equity and inclusion. If you're not already a diverse equitable and inclusive <laughs> place because you missed that boat <laughs> for a while. Then when you begin to try, you're like Ji Yun. You don't have the resources and you don't have the receptive community in your department to welcome people of diverse backgrounds. So they feel a little lost and we've lost people um, because of that, people we really wanted. Um, and now it's getting better in the English department, but it was very hard for a while. Um, but I want to say the one big difference between UCI and what we see in this story about the English department is that UCI's English department is in a place that, believe me, it looks nothing like a college. It's, <laughs> it's like an exhibit of modern architecture and the college they've chosen somewhere in Pennsylvania. Uh, there are two of them there where they shot. They're just like, your fantasy of what an American college looks like. Sort of a plantation, to be honest. Yeah, the chair has a paneled office that looks sort of like an English club. 
I've never seen an office like that in anybody's uh, campus. So beautiful. And, and it, there's a zinger at the end about the office, which is quite nice. Well, I have to say, I did not like the chair very much. Of course, I'm an old white man, but... I didn't want to say it, John. <laughs> but, but as a comedy, I did not think the chair was very funny. It alternated between broad kind of slapstick farce, you know, a professor peeing in public, and gentle mockery the old white men confused about their pills at the department meeting. As a picture of academia, I thought it was way out of date for what they say is a major university. This is an English department in 2021 that does not have a single African-American tenured professor. I mean, UCLA has five or six. But they're major. This place was not major. Well, it, yeah, it's described as a major university by Netflix. So, so what do they know? But what do they know? I thought the... Um, the student protests over this Nazi salute thing really were just a cartoon of what activism on, on campus is like these days. I mean, these this is not what woke kids are like on campus. They are concerned about, about you know, the N-word in their assignments or maybe sexual harassment rumors about the Concerned about things that really reflect problems in social structures and systemic racism. They're not so concerned about what the Department of Hitler Studies, as Don DeLillo would call it, <laughs> is doing or what the professor makes fun of Nazis on his stage. They don't care about that. So the, the very pretext of it is a dodge because they're afraid to really confront the bigger problem because the bigger problem is the reason there's no comedy anymore, because you can't make fun of people for this stuff. Yeah. It is that funny. That's why the show isn't that funny. Yeah. It has some, uh, most of the funny is slapstick and character, not about the real situation, because the real situation is bad. Well, I, th I thought the best part of it was not about academia, but the portrait of an Asian American single woman trying to have it all career, parenting, romance, problems with her parents, problems with her adopted daughter. I thought that was really good. And of course, that's because Sandra Oh is really good. You know, she's been she's been on Grey's Anatomy. I looked this up for 15 years. Uh, but the people who wrote this part did know a lot about what it's like being an Asian American woman in the middle on all these different fronts between her parents and her career, between her child. Really, the the person she's playing, Jiyun, is a really good person. And I thought that one of the things the show did well was show how um, cornered a really right thinking, kind person aware of the problems can get because she's faced with impossible choices. She doesn't want to destroy her colleague who did the Nazi salute. Uh, she doesn't want to alienate the students and she doesn't want to alienate them for good reasons, not for stupid reasons. The dean doesn't want to alienate them because he's a scaredy cat. But she doesn't want to alienate them because she loves and respects her students and is interested in the things they have to say. So she's just stuck in this impossible place. Amy Willens teaches literary journalism in the English department at UC Irvine, where the executive producer of the new academic comedy on Netflix, The Chair, got his MFA. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, John. 
Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.